Well, tonight we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I'll be reading out of the ESV. Hear the word of the Lord. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Now this um, passage, it may um, kind of quietly irk us a bit if we start thinking about it. Um, and we've been talking about suffering for Jesus in this book, and uh, we have talked about how to live as Christians in a hostile world, uh, including everything from submission to kings and rulers, to servant relationships, to marriage, uh, and we've talked about Christian character that calls for us to suffer for doing good uh, on account of the grace of Jesus and the example of Christ. And we looked last week as Peter grounded that resolve uh, in the hope of God's promises as exemplified in the story of Noah and signified in the sacrament of baptism. And now he continues to, to talk about suffering for Jesus because of the suffering of Jesus. So he continues to talk about how we suffer for Christ because of the suffering of Christ. And at this point, because we're in chapter 4, we might ask ourselves, what, what gives you? Like, I, I know we're not supposed to say that. <laughs> like, if we're going to talk about the suffering of Jesus, we're supposed to just continue talking about it and never say a word about it. But are we going to move on to other topics? Isn't there anything else that's a little bit more pressing or some other pressing issue that needs to be addressed than this? And apparently, Not. I mean, apparently not. Apparently, this is such a serious issue that it is pressing in on these Christians. Suffering is threatening the church in this in Northern Asia Minor, modern day church. And Peter is addressing it thoroughly, the suffering of the people, rather than just papering it over. He's not just a doctor coming in and here's a quick script and, uh, you know, I'll see you in a month. You know, he's he's like, no, we're going to deal with this. And we're going to suss it out because this is apparently messing the church up. This is apparently a very great threat to the church. And also, there may be more to the suffering of Christ that we can learn than simply um, that he went through some really bad stuff for us. Or that he suffered for us. There may be something more for us to pull from this. Um, you know, but just consider how deep this well is that Peter continues to go back and draw more out of it. He just keeps taking the bucket down and pulling something else out 
of the suffering of Christ, his example, the significance. And so we would do well to continue to, with Peter, patiently meditate upon the suffering of Christ, because clearly there is more to learn here uh, than we have figured out. So uh, so tonight we're going to see how Christ's suffering does three things. Christ's suffering teaches us to arm ourselves. Secondly, how Christ's suffering teaches us to play the long game. And third, how the suffering of Christ causes us to remember why the gospel was preached in the first place. So we'll look at each one of those tonight. We'll begin in verses 1 through 3 and looking at how Christ's suffering teaches us to arm ourselves. And specifically to arm ourselves with a new way of thinking, but also we should understand this as a new way of living. A new way of thinking and living in verses 1 and 2. So now it would be a mistake here to think of Peter is telling us to follow Christ's example only in this, in, uh, in this opening passage. That Christ suffered in the flesh, so you should suffer in the flesh too. He's not only saying that. He's not merely alluding to Christ's example. That there is a gospel reality and what we could call a godly priority here. The gospel reality is that Christ has suffered in the flesh. He took on our sin at the cross... Uh, as, as Paul wrote elsewhere, that he became sin for us. And, he, and in doing so, as Peter says, he ceased from sin, as it were, by his death. In doing so, Jesus has caused all who are joined to him by faith to cease from sin also. But what does that mean, to cease from sin? Well, it means that we are no longer ruled by sin. That we are no longer held captive by its desires or considered guilty by its record. All has been laid upon Christ. So how do we cease from sin uh, in our practical lives? Well, this is where that godly priority comes in. Because this is not Peter saying that if we are really believers, then we would have lives of sinless perfection. Not saying if you truly love Jesus, then you would cease from sin and never sin ever. Right? Rather, he is saying uh, that as those whose Savior has overcome sin through his suffering, we share in Christ's victory over sin. And we demonstrate that sin no longer has a hold over us by our willingness to avoid sin and to honor Christ, even if it involves suffering. The cost we are willing to pay to avoid sinning is a testament to our commitment to live lives in accordance with the will of God and not for human sinful passions, as Peter instructs us to do. But what is the will of God that we need to live our life in accordance with? Well, we can sum it up as easily as Jesus did, right? The will of God for us is to love God and to love our neighbor. If we want to flesh it out more into the Ten Commandments, It's to love God, to worship Him only as He prescribes, to honor His name as holy and beautiful and worthy of honor, to enjoy the time of rest and worship that He gives us. To love our neighbor would be to honor authority, to preserve life, to honor marriage, to live with integrity with respect to our neighbors and their property, to tell the truth and to cultivate personal contentment in what the Lord provides. To walk in grace, faith, and obedience to God is to live a life that shows a decisive break from the patterns of sin in this world and the priorities that the world gives. And we do this because, as 
Peter says, as Christians, in verse 3, the old way of thinking will not do. We have a new way of thinking, a new way of living. Because the old way of thinking, the old way of living, will not do any longer. Peter gives this list in verse 3 of what uh, scholars like to call an ancient list of vices or sinful behavior that is to be avoided, though it is practiced and approved of generally in the public. And so I'm going to run through this list uh, briefly, and then we're going to talk about what Peter says to do about this list. And so the first word on this list is sensuality. Um, Now, that word is actually a bit more intense in the Greek than than, than, than English lets on. Um, The the word actually means a lack of self-constraint, which involves one in conduct that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable. That is a quote (laughs) from a Greek dictionary. So sensuality here means a lack of self-constraint, which involves one in conduct that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable. All right? That's a pretty intense word. All right? So he says sensuality. Second, he talks about passions. Passions is a more general uh, uh, craving, desire, lust for something that is forbidden. Drunkenness, that's exactly what it sounds like. Like it's just ex- excess alcohol consumption which inebriates and impairs the person. Uh, the word uh, here uh, in the Greek literally means to bubble up. That's what drunkenness actually literally means. Uh, all right, the, the, and so, now the term that's translated here as orgies can also be understood as excess revelry. When you're like, well, it certainly is that. Um, but the, the word originally was actually where, the, where that word comes from is actually associated with the festival uh, processions that were either to mock uh, uh, the nobility or they were done in connection with uh, Greek gods, particularly the Greek god of fertility, Dionysus, uh, or Dionysus. And, um, and the, uh, the part, that particular feast was called Bacchus. Have you ever heard something referred to as a Bacchanal? A Bacchanal is something that is extremely craven, and um, shameful, like a party where there's all kinds of you know illicit things going on. They call that a bacchanal or bacchanalia, right? So, uh, well, that's where that comes from. Is from the, the it's from the feast of Bacchus, uh, which was a shameless, wild, and drunken uh, revelry uh, of a party. So, in the Hellenistic era, which is the time of the New Testament, around then, uh, it, it, the term came to mean essentially drunken dinner parties that were often associated with sexually immoral behavior. The closest contemporary reference I would make to this is Mardi Gras. That's basically what it is. So um, that's uh, that's what uh, that's what this means. Uh, drinking parties here is uh, comes from a word that can basically mean a social gathering where wine is served. But the idea here is that it's it's the very central element, and there's a lots of it consumed, and to the point of inebriation. Uh, this is kind of a, you know like a college frat party kind of idea, like a kegger, something like that. Uh, the final term there, lawless idolatries, uh, is certainly speaking about particular acts in honor of pagan gods. Uh, this is the most basic of sins, certainly the oldest and the most pervasive. Now, this list is this list that's given. This is not to say that all Gentiles in the Roman Empire wanted to do these things all the time, at every moment, every day, or that all these practices were praised even by Romans as the best things you could do. Some were accepted, some were celebrated, some were merely tolerated, um, but they were there, and they were in, the, and they were in, they were there, and they were accepted. 
And, um, and it was surprising to find that Christians refused to participate in it. So what does Peter say to do with this list of vices? Well, he says that this list essentially represents Gentile sinful desire. It fits with the desires of the broader culture in which they live. He also, um, he also uh, implies that there are things these, um, uh, the, that these Christians probably participated in. They probably did prior to their conversion, and, as, and, and they may be tempted to do even now by their own flesh or the negative pressure that is being placed upon them in the moment. And so Peter says that the time has passed, it's gone, it's, it's out of here, it's, it, it's, it, that for Christians to do what is on this list. The, and, and I think that is a very helpful way of thinking, that we need to arm ourselves as Christians, first of all, with the reality that the suffering of Christ has caused us to cease from sin, from the, the, these, these sinful desires and practices of the culture. Um, it, was, it, it, was, it was for sins like these, right, that, uh, um, that, that, that the sins that we committed, that Christ died. Further, we live for the will of God. We live to do His commands, to carry out His desires, His holy will. And that means that the time has passed, it's over, to do these things, the things that our culture wants us to do. Now we know Christ. We know holiness. We know grace. We know divine love. There is no place anymore for these things in our lives. And this is a much more complex thought than simply Peter just screaming, Stop sin! Right, um, It's a way to actually fight sin that doesn't involve guilt. He's not guilting them for, for these things. He's just saying these things have no place in you because of who you are in Christ. It is a, it is a, it is a breaking from sin. It's figuring out how to navigate a sinful culture, even if it costs us personally, through the gracious suffering of our Savior. And you know, when we're faced with a list of our own culture's temptations, and not just the ones that are repulsive to us, but ones that we've given into the past, uh, ones that present a, an opening for sin um, and, and that, that tempt us, you know, our response ought to be, Peter's saying, that, look, Christ suffered in the flesh to free me from this. Right? I have ceased from this. This has no power over me. In him, I have ceased to be ruled by sin. I will not live for this because I live for God and his will. And, uh, and, it, and this is important because, I mean, we, can, we, can, we live in a very, I mean, to like a better phrase, it's it, it just a culture that's inundated with sexual immorality. I mean, it was like, you know, it was, it was bad enough when you had to go to the, to the convenience store to go buy your bad stuff, right? Or to go this way or that way. You had to go, and there was shame attached to it. And then... Uh, and then you had cable that came in, and so it starts streaming into the homes, right? And then you had home internet come in, and then it starts going, and then you have smartphones, and then it's like it's just it, and so uh, and now it's just broadly accepted in our culture. People don't highlight it; they don't. Uh, not everyone highlights it. It's great and wonderful, but it's you know things like pornography, things like that. That is an ex, you know that is a very accepted practice and expected especially of young people, of, of uh, most people today that are outside of the church, outside of the faith. That this is an expected thing that people engage in and do. 
and just kind of like, and as Christians we say, no, no. It doesn't mean that there's no Christians that struggle with stuff, but it does mean that as Christians we say, no, we're not ruled by that stuff. But, but now that, that may be something that goes, oh, well, that's repulsive to me. But there are other sins in our culture that are not repulsive to us, that do attract us, that do pull us in. And so we have to watch out for those, right? You don't have to worry about the sins that you have no chance of doing, right? You're know, like, well, I'm doing okay because I'm not going to go do that over there. It's like, well, yeah, but what about that over here, right? You did that twice. So that's like yesterday. So what, what is that? Okay, so we have to watch out for these things. And learn how to arm ourselves against sin with a new way of thinking, a new way of living that comes for Christians. Secondly, uh, Christ's suffering teaches us to play the long game. We see this in verses 4 and 5. And in verse 4, we are presented with the short-term cost of what we can call swimming against the, the current, swimming against the flow. Now, thinking back to that list of sins, Peter says that the very fact that Christians do not participate in these things produces two results. First is surprise, genuine surprise and shock. Unbelievers who are not familiar with the church are genuinely surprised when Christians don't join in what is broadly accepted by the culture. Now, he refers to that as the flood of debauchery, which I think is a... Very apt phrase to describe that list. It carries this idea of a reckless abandon into sin. But secondly, he says, not not only are they surprised, but then they malign Christians for not participating. Surprise quickly turns into personal offense. If you're not doing what I'm doing, right? Uh, and so it's not enough that you tolerate it. You've got to celebrate it, right? That's, that, that's what we see in the culture. And so lack of participation is seen as rejection of their behavior. And personally, so they respond by maligning. Now, that word malign, translated there, is actually the, technically the word blaspheme. But when, when, when it's applied to God, it's blaspheme. But when you apply it to people, it's not blaspheme necessarily. But it is speaking falsely. Perversely about another. They speak falsely, maliciously about the church because we don't participate um, in the flood of debauchery of the broader sinful culture. Now, the church has many problems, many inconsistencies and hypocrisies and failures that if the church refuses to recognize, deserves to be called out. Right, we can just say, look, wherever that, if we're not, if we're not, people have a right to call us for that because God is going to call us to account. But there is still no question that believers are often maligned simply because of the fact that they refuse to participate or approve of our culture's sinful values. And I don't think I have to work too hard to convince you of that. It's it's pretty out there. So. The relationship between the sexual revolution, it's not even a revolution anymore. It's the sexual establishment at this point. Like, what, are you re- what are you being revolutionary against anymore? You won. Like, like you've taken over. It's, to be sexually revolutionary is to, you know, for, is for a young person to save himself for marriage. That's revolutionary now, right? Uh, it was, um, I've shared before how like, a friend of mine, you know, utterly shocked his girlfriend's parents when he refused to move in with her to test their relationship out before they got married. He was like, I'm sorry, I can't do that. <laughs> and so, you know, it's just like, 
Okay, so. To tolerate something is to allow for the existence of that which you do not agree with. And so Christians, as Christians, we accept the fact that there are people who hold different beliefs and practices about sexuality than we do. We believe those practices are wrong. We believe those practices are immoral. But we're not going to go after them guns blazing because of what they did. But we're also not going to celebrate it. We're not going to participate in it. We're not going to call evil good. We're not going to call good evil. But the very fact that the church refuses to celebrate these things usually means that we get maligned as evil monsters. And we're called the enemy. We're called, you know. I mean, just watch any, any celebrity that even flirts with the evangelical church. And all of a sudden it's just the flood of just, even if they're not, even if they're saying all kinds of weird things over here and over at the church, we're like, we're not really sure if they're actually a believer. Because they're pretty weird. Like, they're pretty out there. But the fact that they even said something close to it, it's just, the rage just, just comes out and comes down. Even uh, or even look at uh, the, the right now the Supreme Court decision that's possibly not even confirmed that Roe's getting overturned. There's a leaked court opinion from the month of February, which may or may not be the majority decision. We don't know. We don't know. It could be changed. We don't even know what the vote total is. We don't know anything except this one opinion that got leaked as a draft from February. Now it might be the majority opinion. We don't know, and yet. Uh, and yet, and yet, what you put, yet you have groups that are leaking out the private home addresses of Supreme Court justices, calling them religious evangelical extremists on the court. Why? Because they might possibly be overturning a bad case law that even Ruth Bader Ginsburg said it was decided wrong. <laughs> so it's just kind of like it's, if you're not on board, then it will it's search and destroy. Them. Now, thankfully, the church at the present moment, for the most part, in America, does not face physical persecution of the kind that Peter and his audience was facing. But in that time, Christians were seen generally, broadly, as essentially killjoys who were disloyal to the state because they refused to participate in the worship of pagan gods and including the worship of the emperor. Today, as the church refuses to bow the knee to pressure regarding marriage, sexuality, and more recent gender issues, we are seen as a problem that should be destroyed. Peter is simply showing us here that this is a price that we must pay for as we are committed to God. And we pray for revival. We pray for a turnaround. We pray for a change. But even if it doesn't happen, we're not changing We're not sacrificing the truth of the gospel, the truth of the scriptures, the truth about about humanity, about sexuality, about marriage. We're not changing these things. Not because we don't want to or we just like traditions, but because we are accountable to God and just as the rest of the world is. So we follow Paul's exhortation to live at peace as much as it is up to us. To live at peace with others without compromising holiness or the gospel. And one reason that we do this 
It's because, as we see in verse 5, the reality of the judgment that is to come. While those opposed to the church and to holiness will malign and attack in the short term of this life, in the end, unless they repent, they will give an account to God who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is Peter teaching us to play the long game. That short-term pain, the short-term, the, the, the suffering that we may endure, or the, or, uh, the name-calling, the obstruction, the, um, uh, the, just the personal attacks that we have to deal with, and even if they start escalating and, and tax exemptions start get, start get taken away from churches and it, they start trying to make it harder to, to be a, a, a Christian church, in America, even if all that starts changing and, they're, and they start trying to make it harder for that, and they go after, and they're, they're going after ministers every once in a while, they keep trying to make it harder uh, for ministers as well. And just let's say all that starts happening. Peter's saying, look, all of that, even leading up to the great trials that Peter's audience was going through, great bodily, life threatening trials, is the short term cost for long term gains the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to see that short-term pain is necessary and beneficial because in the long run, those who trust in Christ will not face judgment. Now, I want to be clear here. It's, uh, we won't face judgment because Christ has already suffered for our sins. We don't face judgment because Christ has already been judged in our place. And I just want to be clear because I want to make sure it's, you don't face judgment because you suffered That's uh, that for your faith. That's not why you get out of judgment. right? That's because of the grace of the gospel. But in the end, we will be vindicated from our suffering, rewarded by God for seeking his kingdom, his righteousness, and his will, first and above all. Peter is telling the church, both then and now, not to give in to the short-term intense pressure that the world and the culture can put put on us, but to continue to live Christ-centered lives centered in compassion and love toward those who even hate us, as our Savior said to do, knowing that, what God, that God will do what is just in the end. And we need to understand from Peter here that short-term pleasure that this world offers and giving ourselves to it leads to long-term loss. But short-term suffering for holiness eventually results in eternal gain. And so when the world comes at us with temptation, and when we won't go for it, and the world comes at us with scorn and contempt, Peter says, play the long game. Remember the judgment that is to come. They will give an account, and you will be delivered. Finally, look at verse 6. And see that Christ's suffering teaches us to remember why the gospel was preached in the first place. He says in verse 6, remember the judgment is coming. And Peter is talking here about the final judgment. He says, for this reason, because of the judgment of God, that the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. And by that he means those Christians who have already died and gone to be with the Lord. This is the chief motivation for believing and sharing the gospel. 
It certainly is love for God, but it always, it always struck me that, you know, John Calvin, famously known for his, his, his teachings on predestination, you know, he taught that we need to go and, and, and share the gospel. He even had some of the earliest teaching about essentially what we would call missionary teaching about we need to have missionaries. And, uh, and, and what was his reason? Why? He didn't, talk, he didn't say anything about predestination. He didn't say we need to get out there because there's people who are predestined to believe us or it's their predestiny to whatever. He didn't say any of that. So why? He says we need to get out there. We need to share the gospel. Why? Because judgment's coming. Because judgment's coming. There is a time when every man and woman and child is going to have to give an account before the Lord. And the only thing that's going to save them is the gospel. So even Mr. Predestination himself said, we got to get out there and share the gospel because judgment is coming. There's an urgency to it. And so every, for that very reason, every man, woman, and child must come to terms with the Lord for that very reason, before that judgment comes. We distance ourselves from it because of our medical technology, because of our aversion to even talk about things like death and to not want to sound morbid. But I've always, I've mentioned before, but I always think about Jonathan Edwards who, you know, he lost at least one of his children. Uh, uh, his, I know he lost his teenage daughter uh, um, to tuberculosis. Um, uh, and, but he, um, uh, but he you know, said to his 10-year-old son, you need to make your peace with the Lord. And people go, dude, that's getting, really, it's getting real harsh there, bud. And it's like, because he needs to, right? He, that kid needs to know what, to, what does he know about the Lord? What's his commitment? Is he really committed? Because... Death and judgment are a real thing for a 10-year-old and for a 100-year-old, right? They just say, we live in a fallen world, and tragedy can strike. And so even, uh, so even our young ones need to know. Because, make no mistake, we need to see here that the gospel saves. These Christians, Peter says, who have died, they were judged in the flesh through persecution in, in certain cases, but by death. Uh, in, ex- in the experience of death generally. Yet though they experience death, which all men must face in this life, uh, these believers live in the spirit and the presence of God in a manner similar to the way that even God lives. The gospel was preached because the final judgment is coming. The gospel continues to be preached because judgment is still yet to come. And for those who believe in Jesus, death itself gives way to spiritual life in the presence of God. And so we see here that the suffering of Jesus is a very deep well from which Peter just continues to draw lesson after lesson after lesson from. The suffering of Jesus teaches us to arm ourselves with the decisive break from sin and to live according to the will of God. The suffering of Jesus teaches us that the... the The sins our culture loves are a thing of the past for believers. And that even though they may malign us for our unwillingness to participate in or celebrate them, we know that the judgment of God is coming. And we will continue to hold out the word of life in love to pray for our enemies and to do good to them even while they hate us. It was for the judgment of God, this reason that the gospel was preached, that we would be saved from judgment and even death itself. When he gets down to it, Peter is saying, look, it takes courage to live for Christ. And the suffering of Jesus 
gives us the grace, power, and direction we need to honor you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we do have that example, that we have that gospel reality, his suffering, which redeems our sufferings, which teaches us how to live for you. And Lord, we pray that you would indeed forgive us for the ways that we have given into sin, uh, in the sins of the culture, the sins that do appeal to us, the sins that we still long for in various ways. We pray, Lord, that we would begin to think of ourselves as having a decisive break from sin on account of Christ. That not only are we, have we broken from sin, but that we live to do the will of God. And all because of Christ. All because of His suffering and Your love. Lord, we pray that when we face opposition, when we have to pay a cost for following You, that uh, we would not um, get angry, we would not get bitter or hostile towards unbelievers, but that we would play the long game knowing that the judgment of God is coming and that we would have pity even upon those who hate us because we know that their time will come to an end if they do not repent. And there are far greater terrors that await them without repentance and faith in Christ. And Father, we pray that All of this would remind us of why the gospel was preached in the first place. That Christ suffered to save us from our sins, but specifically to save us from the judgment that our sins required. And that we would rejoice in the reality that the gospel saves. It works. It saves even those who have died and gone to be with you. So, Lord, may we take encouragement tonight. May we be strengthened in our faith and resolve to live for you. And may you be glorified in your people by how we live, how we rejoice in the gospel and the suffering of Jesus Christ. And, then, and Lord, may we see in our lives and in the lives of one another how you are redeeming us and blessing us We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.